worshipping. Uh, Lord, thank you that you still speak to us. Thank you that you still save, that you redeem, that you call people to yourself. Um, yeah, we come to you in grace tonight. Amen. I was reading an article just the other week, simply titled, what, was, what is wrong with the world? So what is wrong with the world? It's a really good question to talk about. Normally, uh, when I read articles like that, people kind of give reasoning or, or sort of rationale towards what is wrong to the world in terms of like institutions. And so political powers or certain people groups, certain ways of running the economy, that is what is wrong with the world. But this article is different because it analyzed it almost psychologically. And so the problem and the issues with our world are not because of systems, but because of issues within us all. And it used a lot of words I was kind of familiar with, things like self-esteem, low self-esteem. What's wrong with the world? People have low self-esteem. And that comes out in unhealthy things. Or people have low self-regard. Or they have a low sense of self-worth. A new word that I did hear was that they suffer from a thing they call dis-ease. Like dis-ease. Which apparently means that you are not at ease with your actual self. You're living some sort of artificial self, not tied to who you are. And that leads to dysfunction in the world. Obviously this is individual, but if you sort of times that by the whole population of our planet, it means life is kind of messed up. I think if you really, really wanted to, though, you could actually kind of categorise all those words into a concept that's not actually all that popular in this day and age. The word's guilt. Now, if I had spoken to you 100 years ago, people would say, yeah, I'm on board with guilt. If you do something wrong, it's, a, it's actually right if you feel bad about it. Guilt's appropriate. It's an appropriate response. But in this day and age, guilt's treated much more differently, isn't it? Guilt's kind of like a social construct. Guilt's something that we imagine. Guilt's something that we don't have to deal with because it doesn't actually exist. But the truth is, I think guilt's much more pervasive in our culture and in our world and in our lives than maybe we want to admit. Guilt's much more pervasive in our lives than we want to admit. Um, if you think of the negative things in your life kind of like rocks, if you lifted them up, you're probably going to find little guilt worms. And so if you, if you lift up the rock of things that make you really angry, there's a little guilt worm underneath. Or your anxiety, the things that you stress about. That's guilt. The things that make you upset, the fact that you can't handle criticism. That's guilt. The fact that you're so sensitive about what people think about you, it's guilt. I've got a quote here from a psychologist. This guy's a really reputable guy. Um, he writes a lot of different things in different journals and stuff like that. And he says guilt's a very real problem. This is what he says here. I don't think I have it on the board, sorry about that. But he says this, a guilty conscience is the daily seasoning of life. A guilty conscience is the daily seasoning of life. Guilt is pervasive, it's everywhere. And perhaps even as you're hearing this, you might be thinking about the ways you even use guilt or have had guilt used against you to get certain things. Guilt's everywhere. Much more pervasive than our culture might want to think. Luckily, and I believe the Bible and I believe Christian truth because it's the truth, for us who are Christians, there's incredible resources within the Christian faith that enable us to handle guilt, both personally but also in terms of relationship. Incredible resources to deal with guilt. Um, established churches having a, an influence on me. My, my points are nice and alliterated and sort of rhyming. So just so you know where I'm going, the feeling of guilt, the dealing of guilt, and the healing. That just sort of rolls off the tongue. You know, it just... Puts me in a zen, right? Feeling of guilt, the dealing of guilt, and what was the last one? The healing of guilt. That's where we're going. Um, just so you know, we had a big passage. I was sort of given the mandate of preaching on Romans 5. This is kind of the last talk we're doing on Romans, by the way. 
Um, but Romans 5 is huge. Like, it's massive. And so I said, I'm gonna, I did try to write a talk on the whole chapter. Then I said, I'm not going to do that. So I took the first 11 verses. And even that's huge. Okay, so I'm actually just going to focus on specific parts of 1 to 11. I'm sorry about that. Hopefully, we're going to cover that another time here at Established Church. But at this time, I'm going to talk to about 1 to 11 and certain parts of it, okay? So how do we deal with guilt? How do we deal with guilt? First one, feeling of guilt. I'm going to take you to the first verse of what Paul's talking about from chapter 5 here. Really important things to note here. So, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing I really want you to pay attention to is just the language that he's using. So this is a legal terminology that he's using. To be justified is a legal um, sort of labeling of where we stand in relation to God. And so through Christ, what he's done on the cross, we are declared legally, the theological word is forensic. We have this forensic declaration of who we are in Christ through what Christ has done. We are justified. Okay, and what Paul is doing here, he does this a lot through Romans, he gives these sort of pithy sort of summary statements. So this is one. I'm going to take us to another summary statement. This is kind of like summing up what we've been talking about all the way through Romans. It's going to take us back to chapter 3, verse 23. This is what he says here. Hopefully you know the verse. For all have sinned, this is going from verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified, again, that word freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Again, we hear the same emphasis, don't we? This legal, undeniable, undisputable declaration of where we stand. We are justified, how? Because of what Christ has done for us. Now, all these things point... Now, this isn't popular in our world, but all these things point to an objective moral reality. There's an objective moral reality that Paul is talking about. That there's such a thing as moral consequence. Just like if I lift a stone and it falls down, that's the law of gravity. If I do something wrong, there is a moral consequence behind what we do. There's something that's going to come in as a result of what we've done. I'll say it again. It's a hard thing to understand. This all points to an objective moral reality. And in our world, we want to deny that. Everything's subjective. There's no such thing. You know, your truth is your truth, and your truth is that truth, and you can believe whatever you want to believe. But that doesn't actually align with what Paul's saying here. He's pointing to an objective moral reality. And what I was talking about before with this struggle that we have with guilt... I think, points us to that on some level we are actually aware of the fact that there is an objective moral reality. I think on some level we're actually aware that there's an objective moral reality. My feeling of guilt says my feelings aren't just the feelings, that there's something here. Something needs to take into account. Because these things are sort of shuffled away in the way we sort of talk about these things. So sometimes we think that the morality that we live by is sort of given to us by our family. And the reason we feel guilty is because our family told us to behave and act in certain ways. Sometimes our society is the reason that we're giving. So these things are socially determined. Even our own expectations, we don't live up to them, that's why we feel guilty. But Paul's saying, actually, the reason you feel guilty is because of this objective moral reality. 
Now, people I talk to, I talk to a lot of people, I have a lot of non-Christians in my family, um, they're busy living their, well, these aren't people who follow Jesus, they're busy living their authentic lives, creating their own reality, doing their own thing. But if you talk to them really, they wake up and they struggle with these feelings of guilt and shame and worthlessness. They have a voice inside of them saying, we're a coward, we're a fool, we're a loser, we're a sinner. And we can't push those things aside. We can't push those things aside. We want to, but we can't. I'll give you an example here. Um, I watched recently a film called Schindler's List. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's an old movie now. Um, it's a really powerful guy, movie about a guy called Oscar Schindler. You may have heard of him. Um, he's a guy who became famous in World War II particularly because he saved a lot of Jewish people. But it didn't start off like that. He was actually a really wealthy businessman who exploited the Jews to make money. But something changed in his heart, in his life, and what he did was he actually bankrupted himself, smuggling Jews out of Germany so they'd be safe. So that's the story of Schindler's List. Really, really powerful movie. Now, you'd think the movie would finish in triumph, you know, with a statue of this guy, or him hanging out with all the people he saved, but it doesn't. There's this really kind of disturbing scene where he goes up, he has his car, because he's a wealthy guy, this really, really expensive car, and he goes before this car, and he just falls to his feet and starts weeping. And the reason he does that is because he realizes that if he had sold that car, he probably could have saved 10, 20 more Jews. He's probably realizing that if his heart had changed earlier, he could have saved even more, maybe even hundreds and thousands. Now you're going to say to him, your sense of guilt is socially contrived. The reason that you don't think the mass genocide of a people group is good is because your society told you that. No, there's an objective moral reality to which we need to give an account. And I think we're all aware of that. Guilt is our feeling that our wrongdoings are more than just a feeling. That they need to be taken into account. Guilt is the sense that my wrongs have created a moral weight, a record. They have a weight, they have a being of their own, and that someone or something or I need to suffer to pay for what I've done. I have a quote here from a theologian. Um, he's a Swiss guy. He has a long name. I'm not even going to try and read it out. This is what he says here. Guilt means that our past, that which can never be made good, will always constitute one element in our present situation. And as much as we want to push it away and theorize it away, we can't. It follows us around. It follows us around. We can't push it away. We can't get rid of it. It follows us around. That's the feeling of guilt. Luckily, he gives us the dealing with guilt as well. So we've spoken about the feeling of guilt. What does he say here? The dealing of guilt. That doesn't actually make a lot of sense. Create the next slide up. I think it should be the dealing with guilt or something like that, but just forgive me that. Now, how does the Bible talk about dealing with guilt? How does it do that? Well, I think I'm going to talk about the principle, and it's all through the Scriptures, but it comes up really, really clearly here, of self-substitution, of God putting himself in our place. All the way through the Bible, it's hinted at, but it comes to a climax in the cross. Let me read from verse 6, self-substitution. Look what Paul says here. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for, so in the place of, instead of, who? The ungodly, those who didn't have any um, reason to be able to, for this to happen. So he died in our place. He goes on, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. 
Look at the emphasis here. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I memorized this verse as a kid. I remember memorizing this at Sunday school. I was kind of forced to it. Never actually sunk through why this was so important. But here we see so clearly the self-substitution of God. So God in Christ putting himself in the place where we deserve to be. And he doesn't sort of say it once. He actually says it a couple of times again and again and again. Verse 6, Christ died for the ungodly. Again, he sort of says it in a different way in verse 7. But verse 8, again, clear as crystal. While we were still sinners, while we were lost in sin, Christ died for us. He died for us. Self-substitution of God. Um, John Stott puts this beautifully. I've got first part of a quote, and then we'll talk about it in a second. So first part of the quote that he says here is this. As the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves from God, putting ourselves in his position, so the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. The self-substitution of God. We need to ask the question, what's the essence of sin? What's he even talking about there? What, what does that even mean? Well, there's really two possibilities. I'm sort of simplifying it just for the point of argument. But basically, either you're a random collection of molecules, you know, you're a, you're a cosmic accident. You're here because of evolution or something. It's just chance. In which case, you don't owe anything, anyone anything. Or you're created by God. You're, he breathed life into him, into you rather. And if that's the case, you owe him everything. You owe him everything. All your talents, what you do with your body, what you do with your thoughts, what you do with your sexuality, your money, your time, everything. And if you go and make your own decisions, then what you're basically doing is putting yourself where God and only God has the right to be. So if you're doing all those things for yourself, you're putting yourself where God has the right to be. The second part of um, the quote that Stott shares here, it sort of crystallizes it even better. Because we put ourselves where only God deserves to be, he put himself where only we deserve to be. So he's just sort of paraphrasing and crystallizing what Paul is talking about here. Now, as I read that, there's a part of my heart that just sort of soars. I'm amazed um, as I read this. I was reminded of this this week, of how, rep- how often this is replicated in stories and narratives. I was watching Frozen with my Year 7 class. So I had the last class with them just on, I think it was Wednesday or Friday, one of those days, and we are watching Frozen. They talked me into watching Frozen. And I get mixed up. There's Anna and there's Elsa. That's good. Thanks for confirming. I appreciate the, the, the audience interaction there. Um, and there's this part right at the end where I think Anna's about to die. Tell me if I'm getting the name wrong there. And Elsa, I'm not going to go into the details of how she does it, but she sacrifices herself on behalf of her sister. Okay? And, of course, in Disney style, she comes back from the dead. That's the way it works, right? Now, I think Disney, because they actually feed this kind of gospel narrative into their movies so often, Disney should give royalties to every church that exists. So I think Disney should give us a check of probably $1,000 a week, maybe $2,000, because they use and reappropriate the gospel message again and again and again. This idea of someone dying for the many. But it's the gospel message, isn't it? And I've spoken about Disney. We could talk about Harry Potter. He sacrifices himself at the end, doesn't he? We could talk about the Lord of the Rings, Gandalf. Sorry, I'm a massive geek. Um, 
and this might not be resonating with any, any of you, but it really stands out to me. How often we see this gospel narrative come up in stories and movies and popular culture. And like I said, Disney should be giving us royalties. But it's powerful, isn't it? There's a reason Paul says this again and again and again. I've got this quote here from 2 Corinthians. God made him sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Same thing, different words. Self-substitution of God. God putting himself where we should be, taking the punishment that we deserved, and we getting the benefits that only he deserved. Number three, the healing of guilt. The healing. So we're talking about the feeling of guilt, we're talking about the dealing of guilt, how it's dealt with, how God deals with it, then the healing of guilt. So there's ways that we can do this. How do we actually sow this into our life? Because we're not that good at it, truth be told. We can understand this on an intellectual sort of level, but how do we get this to affect our lives? How do we get this to affect our hearts, our emotions? How do we respond accordingly? I've got two things here. So the first thing, a little bit contradictory, but hear hear what I want to say here. You're healed of the guilt that you have to the degree that you are aware of your sin. So I'll say that again. You're healed of the guilt that you have to to the degree that you're aware of your sin. I'm just going to take us back to that passage Um, to what Paul said, because this is kind of the opposite of what our modern world and modern psychology tells us. We need to tell ourselves how sinful we are, but look what Paul says here. Look how he pairs our sinfulness with what Christ has done. There's a contrast. Verse 6, you see, just at the right time, while we were still powerless, powerless in our sin is what he's saying there, powerless in our need for God, Christ died, who? For the ungodly. And so the enormity of Christ's sacrifice is paired with our sinfulness. And he sort of makes this funny comparison in verse 7, but verse 8, he says the same thing again. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Why we were sinners, why we were sinners, Christ died for us. Hear the contrast. This amazing, beautiful picture of Christ on the cross and these reminders of how sinful we are, the reason why that happened in the first point. He really labors the point. Jesus actually makes a really similar point. Okay, he's talking about how we should respond to what, Christ has, or what, what he does on the cross for us. There's this little narrative of um, Simon the Pharisee. He's talking with Simon the Pharisee and he's chatting and debating as he's, he's his way. And this, this prostitute comes up and basically starts pouring perfume on his feet and wiping them with his tears and all that sort of stuff. And he sort of says, what, what, how can you do that? This filthy, dirty sinner, she's a prostitute. She's the worst of the worst in the Jewish hierarchy. How can you do that? And I'm paraphrasing a lot here, but he tells this little kind of story about a a person, well, two people who owe debts. One owes 500 denarii, the other owes 50. And the person who is owed money cancels the debt and he asks the question, who has more love? And the obvious answer is the one who has more things forgiven. This is what he says here. But to whom little is forgiven, the same love is little. But he compares that to those who love much. Why? Because so much has been forgiven. And so if you want to appreciate what Christ has done for you, reflect on how deeply sinful you are. And we forget. I forget. I think I'm not a bad guy. That sounds a little bit ironic, but I don't mean it to sound that way. I think I'm a good guy. You know, I pay my taxes, generally speaking. I have a job. I have two jobs. I look after my family, I do the right thing, and I forget how deeply in need of what Christ has done for me I am. 
But the way I marvel in the cross is by looking at my sin, the depth of my rebellion against him. Second thing, look at the cross. Look at the way Christ saves us. Look what verse 8 says. Just take us in here. Let's look at it in close detail. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we're sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrates. This is for us to see. He shows us. This is revealed. It's a really interesting thing. And we hear this often in hymns, don't we? That we need to look to the cross. We need to look to this horrible, barbaric event that happened 2,000 years ago. But yes, because when we see that for our salvation, it's actually a beautiful sight. It's by the cross that we're saved. This is um, a direct quote from a hymn. I'm sure you know it. If you're a Christian, you might know it. If you're not, it doesn't really matter. Notice what it says here. When I survey, there's a certain irony here. Why would I want to look at a cross? But look where it goes here. When I survey, I think the lyrics should come up on the screen here. When I survey, when I look, when I see what Christ has done for me, the wondrous cross, even that's an ironic kind of phrase, isn't it? The wondrous cross? But it is wondrous. On which the Prince of Glory died. My riches gain, I count but loss. And poor contempt in all my pride. So if you want a heal of guilt, look at the cross. Look at what he's done for us. How do we deal with guilt? How do we deal with it? How do we deal with sin and shame? Well, there's this feeling that we can't get away from. We can't deny it. It takes us to the dealing that we see in Romans here and also the healing. But the truth is we don't get this, do we? We find this so hard to apply. We find this so hard to actually take into our hearts. And sometimes our sin just seems so big, doesn't it? It seems so monumental. Our rebellion so deep. Sometimes I just look at the things in my life and I just think, my goodness, how can I call myself a Christian? I was reminded of this um, the other day. Sometimes if you walk out at night, well, all the time if you walk out at night, you see the, 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 the moon and the stars and they seem so bright, don't they? They kind of take up the sky. And if you go out in the country, it's even more profound. Of course, when the sun comes up, you can't see the moon and the stars. I think it's kind of like that way with the cross. Sometimes our sin just seems to take over the night sky. You know, you look up and you, I can't see a way, around, a way around this. And then the cross comes, what Jesus did for us, the grace that he promises in what he provided for us. And it shines everything away. I think that's what Paul's pointing about here. There is no guilt in Christ. I'm just going to pray. And I think we're going to sing a song. Yeah, Lord, we become dismissive of this. We hear this so often. Our hearts aren't moved. They become dead. They become lifeless because we forget what you have done for us. But break our hearts, Lord. Work your spirit into us. Give us a renewed sense of both our sin and our need for you, but also for the enormous uh, thing that you did for us when Jesus died. Uh, Thank you for what you've been teaching us from Romans, our dependence on you. But thank you so much that we have a hope beyond this life because of what Jesus did for us. We remember that humbly right now. Amen.